Well, he is Greek-American. He's a New Yorker. It's a great American success story. He's involved in a number of businesses. He's a great role model. He's got plenty of ideas on how to bring change. Enlist the support of business leaders, elected officials. Katz and Matitas rub shoulders with some of the most powerful people in the world. Great American, a great New Yorker. Now that's John Katz a native New Yorker. Mixing common sense thinking with New York sensibility. He's John Katz owner of 77 WABC. And this is the Cats Roundtable on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Everywhere around the world, they come to America. Every time that flag's unfurled, they come to America. Good morning, New York. This is the Cats Roundtable. John Katzmatidis here Sunday morning. We have a great show for you today, and today happens to be Greek Easter, and with us today is Father Alex Kolutsos to tell us the meaning of Greek Easter and the differences between Catholic Easter, Protestant Easter, and Passover. We have with us former Congressman Anthony Weiner to tell us about what the heck is going on in the country. Ed Cox, GOP Chairman of New York, to find out what's going on there. Peter King, Ireland. 25 years of peace. Zach Williams, Albany, what's going on with the budget? And to start off the show today, we got Michael Stoller to talk about the real estate business in New York. Good morning. This is Michael Stoller for the Stoller Real Estate Report. I have the opportunity of interviewing the statistician, as they call him, Bob Knackle, who's the head of the New York Capital Groups. New York Private Capital Group. Private Capital Groups, thanks. So since I introduced you as the statistician, What's happening today? Michael, I tell you, it's a really interesting market, and great to be with you as always. Um, You know, the market has been in correction mode. I'm talking about the New York City investment sales market. Been in correction mode since October of 15 with a brief 12-month hiatus. That was the second half of 2021 and the first half of 2022. Um, And in the second half of 2022, All of the Fed uh, rate increases started to tangibly impact the market. In September, we saw spreads really blow up, uh, and that exerted some downward pressure on value. So we're seeing uh, a reduction in the volume of sales because of the downward pressure being exerted on, on prices, and that always happens. Whenever anything happens in the market to exert downward pressure on value, trading stops, that we're seeing a very slow pace of sales right now. There's downward pressure being exerted on property values. And and interestingly, each product type is reacting very differently. So let's talk about each product type and how they're reacting. Okay. Well, I look at the multifamily market. It's very interesting. Clearly, cap rates are higher based on higher lending rates, but it is remarkable to me the amount of demand that exists. Uh, The whole face of New York City multifamily has changed completely in the last four years. The overwhelming majority of folks who historically had only bought New York City apartment buildings are buying all around the country now. Uh, And a lot of people who have been priced out of their local markets are now coming to New York because where the New York City market always used to have cap rates 150 or 200 basis points lower than around the country, cap rates are fairly consistent throughout uh, the U.S. today. So we have a lot of new people coming in, demand is robust, and transactions are happening. Uh, In the land space, uh, we've seen two different markets. There's the residential rental market and the residential condo market. Condo land is still selling 
albeit at 20 to 25% lower values than we saw before September uh, when construction pricing really started to get very, very high. But those sites are still trading. People are still bullish about what the condo market will be like three or four years from today. Uh, but the, uh, the rental land market has completely dried up. There is a big air bubble in the pipeline um, and that gets to policy. And although our politicians say they want to drive rents down for people and make New York more affordable, every single piece of legislation that's either been passed or ignored by the legislature is doing nothing but driving upward pressure on rents. And in fact, based on the budget proposals from the governor's office, the assembly and the Senate, I think residential free market rents will go up 10 or 15 percent within the next few months. What about the other assets class? Retail, I think, is a bright spot. Uh, retail rents today are significantly below where they were at the peak, but it's generally considered that they've stopped going down. And for the past two months or so, three months, we've been getting calls from retail investors looking for retail properties. We haven't gotten those calls for three or four years. So that that is a big change in the market. People are bullish about, um, about what's happening with um, – with the retail sector. And I think if you look at office, that's the sector that is the most opaque. Uh, it seems like new construction class A office is doing phenomenally well. There's demand for space. Rents uh, are triple digits in all new buildings. Uh, and that's very, very optimistic. Class B and C properties, much more challenging. Uh, the market is much more opaque. People are trying to figure out what's going to happen with aggregate office demand. Are people going to get back to the office? Uh, so there's still a lot of question marks, and everybody's talking about converting these older, obsolete office buildings right, to I residential. Was ask the, right. Yeah, but but they the prices have not fallen to the point where it makes sense. Uh, our legislators have not put in anything like they so brilliantly did. Uh, uh, with the 421Gs with the in Lower Manhattan. 421Gs, we, we went from a market in Lower Manhattan that had 1,800 dwelling units to nearly 30,000 units, all because of the 421G, or primarily because of the 421G program, that that should be implemented citywide. Uh, we have far too much vacant office space, not enough housing. There has to be a way to create the right incentives to get the private sector to invest billions of dollars to convert this this unused, obsolete office space into housing. It would be great for the housing market, and it would be great for the office market. Well, with regard to the investors, are there foreign investors back? Where are the investors from? Um, a lot of the investors are, are New Yorkers that uh, are new Folks that have emerged out of New York that are, are starting to get active. We have investors from around the country. Uh, and on the foreign capital side, most of the foreigners we're dealing with today are high net worth individuals and families. The institutional capital has not come back in nearly the way we saw it in 2014, 15, and 16, which is really the peak of foreign institutional capital buying in New York. Um, so there are a few institutions that are looking around, but for the most part, the foreigners we're dealing with are high net worth individuals and families. Okay. With regard to the dealers, who's providing the financing today? Are they the private equity groups? Are they leading or is it the bank? Who? Yeah. Traditional banks are, are lending. Uh, alternative lenders are lending. Uh, there are a number of folks that, uh, that are active and view it as an opportunity. Uh, clearly, you're seeing banks wanting to be more conservative, looking at who the sponsor is, uh, being a little more careful about the loans that they're making. But there is a need for, for capital, uh, and people are taking advantage of that opportunity. 
So are we seeing more people joining the lending business now? I think you're going to see all types of people looking to fill that void. It's a profitable business, especially today. Spreads are very, very big. So uh, there's an opportunity to make money in that space. So do you see traditional banks going heavy into the market, or are they going to be cautious, especially in light of Silicon Valley and the Signature Bank deal? I think it's going to vary bank to bank. Uh, Certainly, I think the larger banks have been a big beneficiary of what's gone on over the past couple of months. Um, and they hopefully are going to be lending uh, more. And I think there's an opportunity for smaller niche banks as well. Uh, I think everyone has to find what their strong suit is um, and maybe specialize in one type of loan or another. Um, but I think there, there are opportunities across the board. And it's one of the things that always comes out of these challenging times like we're in today. I think it's important a couple of things. Uh, you have to realize the market has been, is, and always will be cyclical. There's always ups and downs. But particularly in the down markets, it creates great opportunity for people throughout the industry. So I think you're very positive, and as I normally would on my TV show, shape the apple. I think that the apple's going to be shiny for the end of the year. Thank the, I'd like to thank Bob Knackle for being with me today. Great to see you, Michael. Good morning, America. This is the Cats Roundtable, and today is Greek Easter. And so many people said to me, well, Greek, Greek Easter, Catholic Easter, Protestant Easter, uh, Passover, give us all the differences. Well, last week we had Cardinal... Uh, going on to speak for all Catholics, and we had Rabbi Potashnik uh, to speak about uh, the Passover. Today, we have the former Vicar General of the Greek Orthodox Church of North America, and also representing the, His All Holiness, the Patriarch in Constantinople. We have Father Alex Karlutsos. Father Alex, to tell you know, the, um, most of the American people don't understand the timing of Passover and uh, uh, Catholic Easter, Protestant Easter, and Orthodox Easter. Tell us what's going on. Well, in relationship to the calendars, of course, we're all celebrating those, uh, let's say Catholic and Protestants, Easter. But in Greek, we also call it Pascha, which means from the Jewish tradition of Passover. So basically what has happened? Easter, the date is the first Sunday after the first full moon, after the spring equinox, which means March 21st. So the first Sunday after the first full moon is Easter. However, the Orthodox wanted to honor Passover of our brothers and sisters in the Jewish tradition. So the first Passover, Pascha, occurs, and then the second Passover, Pascha, the resurrection of Jesus, Easter, is celebrated by the Orthodox once Passover is complete. So that's why we have a difference with our brothers and sisters in the Christian tradition, Catholic and Protestants, and we are celebrating Orthodox Easter this week, Russian, Romanian, Bulgarian, Greek, all of the Orthodox Christian churches around the world are celebrating Easter in the United States, and specifically in the Hamptons, we get a great deal because all the we get all our Easter candy at a discount, so all the kids are happy. Yes, you buy, uh, uh, all the Orthodox uh, Christians buy the uh, uh, Easter candy a week later, and you get it for a half price from, from what the That's Catholic right. uh, what is, what and Protestants are doing. I want to find out. <laughs> I want to send everybody there at Christidis. Get a discount. I love it. I love it. Thank you. And I hope you're enjoying a great uh, uh, Easter Sunday with uh, your family. And, and, and you. Uh, by the way, uh, the Catholics 
the Orthodox have a midnight mass at Easter, and then you break the fast afterwards. Uh, the Catholics right. do not have a midnight mass. No, the Catholics do the midnight mass for Christmas. We do it at Easter. We close the lights in the entire church. The priest comes out with one candle. Then it lights from one person to the other. The whole church lights up. We sing Christ is risen. It's a big celebration. And then you break the fast, and everybody goes out, and they're going out for uh, lamb and uh, all the wonderful traditions, the musaka, the pasticcio. And at our home today, uh, we are with, uh, we'll have 75, 80 people from different parts of the world, Nigeria, Greece, Romania, Bulgaria, the United States, our Jewish brothers and sisters, and my Kubari. And I'm looking forward to seeing them, and it'll be a wonderful time. And uh, it's all happening today. So we're really excited, and we thank you, John, uh, for giving us opportunity to say hello to everybody and greet them in love. Easter well, is about resurrection and forgiveness, and we've always got to move forward in love and forgiveness. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for explaining it to everybody, and uh, we'll celebrate it and uh, and uh, hope that uh, God prays for our city, our state, our country, and the world because of everything that's going on, Father. Well, look at the betrayal. Look at, we talk about the betrayal of Judas at this point. This guy, Jack Tixera, what's going on, the betrayal of our country. All of us have to be dedicated to America, and we've got to put America first above our politics, above our person. It's got to be God bless America, and we always got to make sure that America is always doing God's will, and these people that are constantly undermining our fabric are just dangerous. So we have to be able to forgive them, but they also have to have meat punishment for what they've done. That's all. Agreed. Father Alex, enjoy uh, uh, Easter, and uh, we'll Thank catch you. up again in, in the, the after Easter. Okay, buddy. With us today is Anthony Weiner. We need to get the opinion of the other side. What the heck is going on in our city, our state, our country, the world? Anthony Weiner, you were a congressman for how many years? Uh, about uh, 13 years. 13 years. So you, you got to know Washington a lot. And uh, one of my opinions uh, lately has been, and maybe you can respond to that, Washington has been become even broken. Broken-er? Is that a word? I've got to check Webster's <laughs> Dictionary. Broken-er. In the last 10 years or something, 15. It's, it seems like it's gotten worse. You know, people sometimes say to me, do you miss Washington? I have to tell you, I don't because it's no longer a place you go to get stuff done because the two sides are so etched in this permanent state of warfare. You know, we used to reward to some degree this group of members of Congress who would get together and work out deals on stuff. But increasingly, more and more members of Congress are getting elected, campaigning on the idea of blowing the whole place up, like this idea that they don't come to Washington thinking that they want to get stuff done. They just want to stop anything from happening. And that's problematic. I mean, ultimately, I think the voters are going to start rewarding people who take more of a practical approach to these things and a less ideological approach. At least that's my hope. Uh, the other thing that... It, it, bothers me in Washington. In, in the old days when you were there, I think, uh, uh, President Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich, they didn't like each other, and I keep telling the story over and over, but they worked together as Americans to get things done. Yeah, I mean, to some... But it doesn't happen anymore. You're exactly right, because if you think about the imperatives, look at who, you know, back in the day, Tip O'Neill, Newt Gingrich, whatever, they had their 
firebrands on the on the left and the right. But they could. They had enough strength and had enough base in the middle to be able to push them off. To say, listen, I can't. You know, I'm going to make this deal with the president. In the president's case, he ran kind of as a centrist. It's very different now. But you know, to some degree, look at who Kevin McCarthy owes his speakership to. Not the centrist guys. He owes it to the real fringe guys. So he can't afford to make a single move towards the middle. But it's another thing that's happened that's different. And I think what you do on the station, you know, I have a show called The Middle on Saturdays. The idea of amplifying voices of people who say, I'm not going to fight with you. I'm going to try to work with you. That doesn't happen anymore. Social media now drills people into their lane, keeps them there. And no one ever comes up to you and says on the street when you're a politician, hey, I voted for you because I want you to go and compromise. They say, I voted for you because I want you to go and fight. But you need to give the politicians the muscle that if they do compromise, they can go back to their constituents and explain why. Uh, understood. And uh, it, it, it just it seems like, and I hate to say it, there's a for sale sign in Washington. Whether it's the senators or whether it's the congresspeople or whether it's the executive office, I mean, it seems like money rules the the, the, yeah. the roost. Well, that's true. But look, money is increasingly grown as a, an influence. You know, I one of the first times I met you is when I came as a congressman and later on as a mayoral candidate and asked for your support. And you were the rare conversation. You didn't say, I'll do it, but here's the three things that I'm super interested in and I want you to go do. You said go out and use your best judgment. We became friends over that. More often than Besides not. Besides, you're a Brooklyn Tech guy. Totally. That's exactly and right. And Brooklyn Tech guys always that's have an open we, door in my, uh, in my to, office. That's right. We stick together. But nowadays, politicians spend hours and hours and hours on the phone calling up. I mean, special interest sounds like a dirty word, but it's people that have a very narrow interest, and a lot of them are business interests. And to some degree, Supreme Court decisions have left this open. You know, I think that it's completely reasonable to say we should have full transparency. Look, Republicans are upset about George Soros. Democrats are upset about the Koch brothers. I say we both shake hands on the idea. Don't let anyone make dark money contributions that we don't know where it came from to influence politics. Get them both out of it, Soros and Koch. Well, I agree. But you know what I agree even more? The foreign money on both sides. Well, that, there's no foreign money. That there is foreign money, Anthony. That's Anthony, I know the fact. I know there's foreign money coming in. And do your own research. You know, you know what I say to you? Do your own research. Hey, but I, I'm, I was a politician for decades. I was on the other side of those phone calls desperately you have, looking for money. You've been out of it for 10 years, and, I things, are, and things are if getting you, bad. If you accept a contribution from a foreign entity, you go to prison. It doesn't happen. Well, suppose a foreign entity is contributing to a PAC. It, well, a foreign entity is contributing to a PAC. Someone's going to go to prison for that. Well... And somebody does it, has anybody I mean, ever have, gone, has anybody ever gone to prison? Oh, we 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 have a, we have investigations and, and indictments all the time about money. As a matter of fact, Donald Trump, you know, had a problem with one of his donors that was. And, and people look. I'm not saying that people don't sometimes accidentally make a contribution they're not supposed to. They're not a citizen, whatever. But not I'm, as a systematic I'm, thing. It, it is not, not a systematic thing. Because thing. here's here's the ultimate. Now, the ultimate. Anthony, I hope you're right. The ultimate. I pray you're right. No, but I tell you, here's the thing. Are, the, you, are you saying to me the Saudis are not making contributions? No, the Saudis. One way or another? Here's what the Saudis are doing. The Saudis, every former president, your friend of mine, Bill Clinton, the Bushes, every former president knows if he wants a contribution to his museum, they're going to get it from the Saudis. So At least happens, $100 million. Oh, the Saudis, they're the worst. But they're buying golf tournaments, too. They're buying TV yes. stations. I mean, they are a real source. But in terms of making a contribution... Anyone who thinks that they're going to get a, a $2,800 contribution 
and they're going to get it from a Chinese foreign national. For that's sale. Kind of for happen. sale. I'm going to print up for you sale. Mean, you mean like Clarence Thomas? Well, <laughs> let me tell you something. Uh, no matter who does anything wrong, uh, it should be called out on it. And uh, the fact is, he, he, did he accept it? Was he really a personal friend? You know, there's personal friends and exceptions. It's a problem. It's a real if problem. If it's a personal friend, it's a personal friend. But um, here's the thing. I, I, I believe, don't know enough about it to here's, talk about Here's it. what I believe. I believe in, in, in transparency to the nth degree. I mean, we saw our mutual friend, Bob Menendez, also was accused of this. He was acquitted because the person making the donations was indeed his friend. But the fact is, when you're a judge, you have to be concerned not just about the law, but the appearance of, of impropriety. And the problem with, look, we have a judge here who's handling the Trump case who donated $15 to Biden. He was an idiot. He shouldn't have done it. I mean, he did it like whatever, a couple of years ago. You have, because the appearance is no good. The same is true when you're taking literally millions of dollars worth of gifts from a big donor and you don't disclose it, which is what went on in the Clarence Thomas case. It's the appearance. I'm not saying people are corrupt. I'm saying that we have there's so much cynicism right now, we have to make sure it doesn't look bad, too. Understood, and I agree 100%. Anthony Weiner, former congressman, I think we should continue our discussions in the future and uh, try to make a difference in our country to make sure our country comes to... That are the American citizens have confidence in what's going on. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. You're a great American. You're a classic example of the people who built this country. He's got plenty of ideas on how to bring change. Great American, a great New Yorker. This is the Cats Roundtable on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's John Katsimatidis. With us today is Governor David Patterson, and uh, he keeps his ears to the ground. He knows mostly what's going on in Albany, New York, Washington, and uh, he's got a common sense head on uh, on his shoulders. Uh, Governor Patterson, what do you hear for this week? This is uh, another weekend. This is uh, Greek Orthodox Easter. Um, you know, we can make you part Greek, you know. Oh, well. Yes. Well, happy Easter, John. And it's not such a happy Easter in Albany because uh, now they are officially 16 days late from the budget. And what I think, uh, to be fair, is uh, what Governor Pataki said on the um, uh, uh, Katz and Cosby show last week, where you and I were both there, is that a good budget is better than a Law, uh, a good budget is better than an on-time budget. In other words, a budget that takes a while to work out. We had that uh, problem. And you had a lot so, of experience that way. You held it up until you got uh, uh, your way because you felt it was better for the uh, uh, for our uh, uh, for our citizens in uh, New York. Well, that did happen. Um, it was my last year. The legislature regarded me as a lame duck, so they gave me a budget that was $500,000 um, in debt. And I told them, we uh, $500 million in debt, what am I talking about? Uh, give and, or take a million. Yeah, give or take a couple hundred million. And I told them, this is not horseshoes. You have to balance the budget. And because a, a state senator named Liz Kruger said to me, that's close enough. No, it's not close enough. 
The Constitution says it has to be balanced. Well, then when they refused to balance it, I told them if they didn't balance the budget, I was going to veto every single one of their member items. And uh, they called me on it, and they actually sent the member items over on paper sheets in boxes that were four and a half feet tall. We put them on a table, and they almost went up to the ceiling. And I sat there for eight and a half hours and signed every veto for each bill so that they would get the message. And then we finally got the budget passed. I am not recommending that Governor Hochul do this right now. This is the second year of her uh, passing a budget as governor. Uh, This is her first year as an elected governor for four years. She's going to be up there with them for at least three more years. I think that her deliberative way of just trying to have compromise, and she gave them a judge who's excellent. Uh, So was the last one, by the way. But she gave them a judge who the legislature will uh, confirm. So things are starting to calm down there. And I think she can take advantage of the inertia inherent that things are not as crazy as they were a couple of months ago. And maybe they have a chance to do something. But I think she her her progress is going to be measured against bail reform, as it has with Mayor Adams, as it uh, was with um you know, other candidates for office. And I think that the legislature really owes her a break because around this state, people are very upset about increases in crime. And as I've said before, it isn't just increases in crime because crime was much higher 30 years ago. It's the proximity of crime. There are crimes being committed in places you wouldn't have dreamed could have happened many years ago. You know, uh, Governor Patterson, uh, it, it's almost out of control. People, 484,000 New Yorkers have left New York. And and according to the last few days, there was a, a survey that 40% of New Yorkers, or was it 27% of New Yorkers, are considering leaving over the next five years. I mean, you know, well, how stupid can uh, some of these legislators be? You've got to estimate that the people who are considering leaving can afford to leave. There may be a lot of people who'd like to leave, but they really can't afford it. And if they can afford to leave, it means that they are probably the highest taxpayers in the state. That's uh, or maybe not the highest, but, you know, they're right up there. This reduces our revenues. This impacts on our ability to provide safety to our constituents. And this uh, kills all of the I love New York sort of uh, campaigns for tourism, because not only will people leave here, they won't come here even on vacation. That's what I'm scared of. I don't want to lose our country. I don't want to lose our city. I don't want to lose our state. Governor David Patterson, thank you for your input. And, uh, Look forward to spending uh, some summer uh, weekends together, and uh, we'll catch up again real soon. Sounds great, John. Thank you. With us today is Ed Cox. He is the uh, chairman of the New York GOP, the state. And uh, there's so many problems. The budget is still not done. Uh, And uh, I'd like to get an update. Uh, Mr. Cox, there's so many problems going on in our city, in our state. What the heck is going on? 
Well, you know, it's what we as Republicans stand for. And as chairman of the party, I've been very clear about it. It's very simple and straightforward. We are for safe streets. We're for good jobs and we're for good education. And anyone of common sense would agree with that. But guess what? The leadership of the of the Democrats, uh, where they have super majorities in both houses of legislature and they dictate what happens there, they don't believe in those things. You take you take good jobs. The leader, the real leader, Mike Gennaris, uh in in the in the state senate. He killed 27,000 jobs in his district just to please Ocasio-Cortez. 27,000 Amazon jobs that paid more than $100,000 a piece. Uh, Those jobs will not come back to New York. Uh, He doesn't believe in good jobs. Safe streets? Come on. They, what they have done with respect to bail reform, with respect to discovery laws, with respect to to uh, to, uh, to raise the age, uh, more inner city youth shooting at each other because they raise the age of, of criminal responsibility. Uh, discovery cases are getting dismissed because the uh, related pieces of evidence, not not pieces of evidence that are actually important but anything related it's it's a cat it's a little catch 22 and the case is dismissed 60 percent of cases are 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 dismissed because of that and assistant da's are leaving uh, good ones are leaving because it's frustrating for them so our system of with respect to criminal laws they do not believe in safe streets Crime is going up on the streets, as I know. WABC has emphasized that time and time again. And, and, and so, you know, good education. They put power on the, the Mayor Adams, who really wants to build up the New York City system as being the preeminent urban school system in the United States. That is what he wants to do. And they said to uh, the the head of the Judiciary Committee, uh, Senator Liu, uh, in the Senate, he made it clear, you're only going to get mayoralty control for two years. After two years, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to evaluate whether or not I want you to continue controlling schools. And by the way, I'm going to dictate to you how many students can be in any class getting down into the weeds in order to please the teachers' union. We have, Ed, we have, Ed Cox, we we have a problem. We have a problem with our education system. Uh, We have a a problem uh, with, uh, you know, I walk out of our office building, I walk out of my apartment building, and all I do is is smell marijuana. I mean, I don't know which way our city and our state is going. The minute you say we're going to legalize uh, marijuana, but we're going to have just a few legal outlets for it. All of a sudden, you got 1,400 illegal uh, uh, shops going on. And the way the laws work, you go in and the police go in, they close down one of them, and then they go down and close another, and the first one reopens again because there's no criminal. Uh, it, so marijuana is now completely legal, basically, even though it's still illegal. By the way, it's still illegal federally. And it's illegal for those shops to operate, but the black market has taken over the minute you say we're going to treat 
marijuana in certain circumstances as being illegal. Now, I can understand for medical purposes. For medical purposes, yes, very carefully controlling this and then the doctors. But the minute you say it can be sold freely in these legal, few legal shops and we'll control it there, then it is you're going to have a black market will just become no longer a black market. It'll be open on the streets and the police can't do a thing about it. I mean, there's so many problems. There was a survey the other day, uh, I forget which uh, uh, college poll, uh, that uh, people in New York City, New York State, uh, 27% of them plan to leave New York City, New York State in the next five years. Yeah. I mean, who's going who's gonna to pay for the budget? And by the way, those are the most productive citizens. When you have additional taxes, when you have additional regulations that make it hard for them to run their business here, they leave. They leave. It's happened in other states, too. You've got many really big entrepreneurs who have done big things like Elon Musk. They leave California to go to Texas uh, because it's another blue state. With They just believe it's about power. That's what is happening. It's all about power. They got two they got supermajority. Democrats have supermajorities in both houses of the legislature, and and that's not enough power for them. Uh, they now want to control our courts. Uh, they, for the first time in the judicial history of New York State, the nominee of the governor, and it was an excellent nominee, the presiding justice of the second department, one of the busiest in the United States, who happened to also be Hispanic. And uh, the legis uh, and the Senate, on the basis of bias and consent that is in the Constitution, they said our committee, Judiciary Committee, turned down. We stacked it, which they did. They added judges to it. Ten nine. That's it. It is decided. You, Governor, do not get your nominee for the first time in the history of New York State, even though it has gone through the nomination process, completely vetted. One of the most distinguished jurists in New York State. He's not going to be chief judge. We're going to turn him down just by a committee vote. Well, guess what? We thought we were Republicans thought that's terrible. That's a matter of principle. Advice and consent means you at least need a vote on the floor of the Senate. And so we filed a case and the judge, of course, decided that what they were doing was unconstitutional. Oh, OK, we'll take it to the floor. And then, of course, they rigged it on the floor. So he was. Ter- so, the- so they're trying to control. All aspects of uh, of of Albany, and uh, eventually things are going to blow up. I mean, where is the ethics? Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And now they're corrupting our judicial process. And we have always had a very good, straightforward one here. We avoided the problems that a lot of other state courts have had because of the integrity of our judicial system. And uh, we have resorted to that as Republicans time and time again over the last last four years, five times we have resorted to the courts and they have upheld what we we were doing. Uh, And uh, what the Democrats were trying to do was being deemed to be unconstitutional. They keep violating our Constitution. We keep calling them on it, and we keep winning on it. But that's all the recourse we have. Now they they want to corrupt the courts, too, so that the citizens of the state don't even have recourse to the courts when they are doing something that's unconstitutional. And by shooting down that other judge, LaSalle, 
That was a slap in the face in every every Latino, every Hispanic in the oh state. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. The Hispanic uh, law associations appropriately went berserk. This was their chance to have a very distinguished jurist who happened to be Hispanic to be the leader of the courts. And by the way, in his testimony, he said, hey, I'm as progressive as you guys are in my political philosophy, but I'm a judge and I'm going to call it like I see it based on the precedence, the law and, and, and what I have to deal with that's in front of me. And they just wanted to say to the governor, our committee, Judiciary Committee, that we can rig however we want, will tell you who you are going to get to be the chief judge. And they took away her power. They took away her power to nominate. Well, Ed Cox, New York State GOP chairman, please, somebody has to stand up for uh, integrity in our city, in our state. And thank you for standing up, and, and we'll catch up again real soon. John, we're not going to give up, the, uh, give up the fight for good, basic common sense here in New York State in our politics. Thank you, Ed Cox, GOP chairman. Here's the man who is New York, exploring the truth, telling both sides with common sense thinking. Here's John Katsimatidis on Talk Radio 77 WABC. This is the Cats Roundtable. With us today is Congressman uh, Peter King. And he had some uh, great week, I understand. Uh, this was the 25th anniversary of uh, the Irish uh, Accords. We're p- putting Ireland and the rest of the world in. Well, I'm going to let Congressman Peter King talk about it. Tell us about the, the 25th year anniversary. And I understand you spoke to uh, 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 Bill Clinton, President Bill Clinton, and he's on his way to Ireland, and he's in Ireland. And you were invited to go to for the 25th anniversary. Yeah, give us the big picture. Yeah, John, thank you very much. Uh, yeah, this is the 25th anniversary. It was in April of 1998 that the Good Friday Agreement was signed in in Belfast. It was among the uh, included the uh, Republic of Ireland, it involved Great Britain, and it involved all of the political leaders in Northern Ireland, including representatives of the paramilitary forces. That would be the IRA on one side. Uh, the UVF on the other side, and this ended, we can even say, 800 years of fighting, 300 years of fighting, 60 years of fighting, a quarter century of fighting. They have been fighting on the island of Ireland between the Irish and the British for centuries. And uh, I think it would have gone on for much longer. The person who broke the logjam was Bill Clinton. He realized when he came to office in 1993, the Iron Curtain was down, and this was the only... uh, battle that any any of her allies was involved in. I mean, Britain is our closest ally. The Irish people are incredibly close to the United States. And he saw the United States being in the position of being an honest broker, where they could bring all the sides together, let each side know that he would not allow the other side to take advantage of any kind of a ceasefire or any type of negotiations going on. And uh, he did it. I mean, uh, the IRA called a ceasefire in 1994. And then... uh, uh, President uh, Clinton gave Jerry Adams, who was head of Sinn Féin, which was affiliated with the IRA, he gave him a visa to, to visit the United States. He did it over the objections of the British government and his own State Department. He took it away from the State Department, the whole Irish issue, and brought it in, in, into the White House, where he handled it personally. And then over the next several years, 
Negotiations started. Talks began under the leadership of uh, George Mitchell, the former senator. He was the chairman of the talks. And around St. Patrick's Day of 1998, Mitchell said, this has gone on long enough. We either have to do it or not do it. And he put Holy Thursday down as the uh, deadline. And things really speeded up then. But on Holy Thursday, it almost came unraveled. I was in New York, and I flew to Washington. That day, I was talking to the uh, British uh, Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. I was talking to the representatives of the Irish Prime Minister, representatives of Sinn Féin, and in constant contact with the, the White House. And suddenly, at the last minute, it seemed people on the side of the unionists, they're the ones who uh, basically wanted to stay directly connected to Britain with no connection at all to Ireland. The other side wanted a, a united Ireland. But suddenly, uh, they started to renege. Those who did not really want an agreement to go forward, who did not, uh, who wanted to stay totally under British control, they started to renege. So I was on the phone that night with uh, the parties in Belfast, with the uh, State Department, with British media, actually doing live interviews on the British media, carrying messages that some of the parties wanted to get out, which they couldn't give, but I was able to give it. Uh, and in fact, at one stage, I said I was being interviewed by a British radio station, and I was watching a live feed uh, of, of uh, television coverage of what was going on. And I said on the radio program, I said, my understanding is that if this isn't resolved soon, Sinn Féin, Sinn Féin party is actually going to walk out. And just as I said that, I'm watching on television, the two leaders of Sinn Féin walk out the door. I went, oh, my God, did I cause this whole thing to collapse? My heart started to skip a few beats. Turned out they were just going out to get a smoke break. Anyway, uh, I went to bed that night. I was on the phone continually about 1.15. There was still no agreement. We now went to Good Friday. And then at 6 in the morning, I got a call from the White House saying there was an agreement. And then when I spoke to uh, Jerry Adams, who was of the Sinn Féin party, he called me, and I thanked him for what they'd done. And he goes, no. All the congratulations goes to Bill Clinton. He's the guy that did it. He was on the phone with all of the parties during the night. And he basically said if they signed the agreement, he would basically guarantee that, that uh, neither side would take advantage of it, <clears throat> that the U.S. would put its full diplomatic force behind the agreement. So this is the 25th anniversary of Bill Clinton. Uh, you know, I, I discussed this on uh, Katz and Crosby the other night, and uh, Bill Clinton heard about that, and he called me on uh, Tuesday evening, and we had a 40-minute conversation, and he was saying great things about you, John, and my good friend, uh, you and Margo have been to him, and uh, how you know, well the show was doing, but he was really gratified that it was discussed on your show, and uh, we were on the phone again, a good 40 minutes, but he's been invited, he's going over this week for the commemoration ceremonies. I've been invited, but I can't make it, and uh, it's, a, it's a moment in history, and again, it would not have happened without Bill Clinton having the guts to get in there, and really break the logjam, taking on his own State Department, taking on the British government, and also warning the Irish rebels, hey, I've gone out on a limb for you. Don't screw me on this. we got to make this work. And he kept everyone together, and it worked. That, that uh, Peter King, that is part of history. Well, thank you so much, uh, Congressman King. Uh, and uh, I wish you uh, would have been there with them, uh, because you deserve to be there, and but uh, we'd love you to be here back in New York and staying with us, and, uh, and we'll catch up again real soon. Well, so I told him, I said, listen, I can't leave Catching Crosby. i got to be there. So there you go. <laughs> Thank you, and we'll, we'll see you soon. 
Exploring the truth, telling both sides with common sense thinking. Here's John Katsimatidis on Talk Radio 77 WABC. This is the Cats Roundtable. Comes true on Sunday in New York. With us today is Zach Williams, the star reporter for the New York Post for Albany. What the heck is going on? And uh, Zach Williams, another week has gone by. Are we any closer to sanity, or are we going to have insanity? Well, that is the question, and the insanity can go in so many different ways at this time of year in the state capitol. But what we do know is that you know two big issues have really been the bottleneck for so much more. You know, the first one is the governor's controversial affordable housing plan. She wants to build 800,000 units over the next decade, but a lot of suburbanites are upset about how it would undermine local zoning rules. You know, the legislature has been really resistant to go against the suburbs on this one. And they're, you know, they got, they got demands of their own, like more funding for rental assistance for NYCHA residents down the city for, so there's that issue. And then, of course, there's the even bigger issue, bail. You know, the governor has proposed changes that effectively would change longstanding law that make bail solely used to ensure people return to court. What she would do would remove the least restrictive condition standard that kind of that judges say kind of handcuffs them, if you will, and keeps them from jailing people ahead of their trials who might endanger public safety or maybe go on to get charged with other crimes. Now, the lawmakers and their outside allies are up in arms about this one, too, saying, you know, this would go to the heart of the 2019 reforms that have proved so controversial in uh, later years. But what they say, you know, keeps a lot of people from needlessly suffering in places like Rikers as they await their day in court. So two issues. They're really like kind of keep holding up everything else, MTA funding, proposed ban on flavored tobacco, taxes, um, and a whole bunch of stuff. You know, this is a, a budget that's expected to top $227 billion. But so far, two weeks after the April 1st deadline, you know, everything's just been bail and housing, bail and housing, it seems. And... Uh... You know how many people have moved out of New York, 484,000, and now, according to the poll, that uh, 27% want to leave New York in the next five years. I mean, who's going to pay all these taxes? Well, you're not a true New Yorker unless you're constantly threatening to move away, right? But it is a very serious problem. You know, the, you know, the long-time decline, especially upstate, um, in New York's population, and, you know, we've seen hints since the pandemic, especially, that, you know, at least some people are leaving the city. It's hard to say. You know, some people say the taxes are too high, and that's driving out the rich, who do, to be sure, pay a disproportionate amount of, you know, state revenues. Um, others say crime. You know, others, uh, others, you know, for a long time, it was just the pandemic itself. Who wanted to be locked up in their apartment, you know, with a deadly pandemic going around? But, you know, the bottom line is here, you know, a lot of people on the political right are looking at crime, they're looking at taxes, and they're looking at out-migration, too, while saying, you know, what the Democrats are doing in Albany just isn't cutting it. I understood. Uh, it's Sunday morning. People uh, 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 are drinking their uh, coffee. 
is there hope that that New York can become and st- become the Empire State again and be and stay the Empire State? Well, hey, the, the, the grass is still green, the sky is still blue, and it's a very beautiful day in Albany. So I'm in what you might say an optimistic mood. You know, uh, every year has a budget dance, but this one has gone on far longer than normal. You know, two weeks, and it's really unclear when it's going to end. You know, the lawmaker's going to be back up here on Monday. They've got to either pay, you know, pass a budget extender, give themselves more time, or miraculously, a state budget deal uh, has to come together, and that, that isn't going to happen by Monday. Let's just say that. You know, they're at least going to need a few more days. You know, you got you got to make the bill. you got to negotiate everything that's bail and not housing. You've got to, you know, give people a chance to debate them, pass them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think the big question here in Albany, you know, we've talked about this so much, John, you know, this, this conflict between the executive, you know, typically, you know, law – for many, many decades, you know, the dominant branch of government versus the legislature. And the legislature, you know, it has Democratic supermajorities. We, you know, haven't seen, you know, a, a, you know, a, par, you know a, a party dominate the state Senate and Assembly so much for decades. So, you know, they're empowered. The governor's holding her ground, and, you know, over bail and other things. And, you know, it's just a question of who's going to win or is there just going to be some way that a deal gets struck in Albany behind closed doors where while me and you are talking, somehow everything comes together and nothing, you know, in terms of the existential issues, you know, uh, you know, uh, conflict between legislative and executive just get put off to another day because they're just finally like, you know what, let's just pass the darn budget. Well, Zach Williams, um, you know, it's uh, Greek Easter today. I'm going to church uh, in a little while, and I'm going to pray a little extra before the Empire State. And thank you so much for filling us in this morning. That's the spirit, John. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for being with us for the Cats Roundtable Local Edition, the number one show on Sunday mornings in New York. Keep listening to us for the Cats Roundtable National Edition between 9 o'clock and 10 o'clock. So we'll be back to you in a few minutes after the news.